Shalom, and welcome to Via Hafta Yisrael, a Hebrew phrase which means you shall love Israel. We hope you'll stay with us for the next 30 minutes as our teacher, Dr. Baruch, shares his expository teaching from the Bible. Dr. Baruch is the senior lecturer at the Zera Avraham Institute based in Israel. Although all courses are taught in Hebrew at the Institute, Dr. Baruch is pleased to share this weekly address in English. To find out more about our work in Israel, please visit us on the web at loveisrael.org. That's one word, loveisrael.org. Now, here's Baruch with today's lesson. When a person studies a particular passage in the scripture, he will find that frequently within that passage, there are key words, words that have for that passage great significance. And that can be extended frequently throughout not just that passage, but throughout that entire book. And still yet, we know that when studying the entire Bible, there are certain words that are key. And one such word is the word truth. And this word truth is going to be significant in our study this evening. So I invite you to take out your Bibles and look with me to the epistle, the third epistle of John. Now, as I've stated previously, these epistles, they do not have an author listed, but traditionally, based upon the style of writing, the vocabulary and such, most people affirm that it's John, the same John that wrote the gospel, and the same John that wrote the book of Revelation, that he is the author of all of these epistles. And what he's doing in this passage of Scripture is that he is speaking to one individual in order that that local congregation might be set in order. We know something. We know that God is a God of truth. And therefore, the enemy, the Scripture says, he is the father of lies. We know that he likes deceit. In the last days, delusion will go forth, and it is because of a rejection of the truth that delusion is going to be very strong in the last days. So let's take out our Bibles and look at this third epistle of John and see his counsel, which is, of course, under the inspiration fully of the Holy Spirit, in order to help this local congregation be placed in order so that the power of God might be released and that there's a testimony pleasing to God. Third John and verse 1. The elder. Now, John here is speaking of himself as just that, an elder probably not an elder of a local congregation, but an elder in sense of someone who is overseeing perhaps many different congregations. It is a position of authority, of respect, one who has a history of providing godly counsel to, to individuals and to the local assembly. And here the author the elder says to beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now, we need to pay attention to what he truly intends at that end of the first verse, where he says, whom I love in truth. Now, he's not saying 
who truly I love, although I'm sure he does. But what he's saying is this. I love you, and this is a word of, of investment, of sacrifice, of getting involved, in participating with those whom you love. You're going to want to be involved in their life. You're going to want to assist them. You're willing to make sacrifices for them. And what the author is saying is, he has recognized this individual, perhaps the leader of this local assembly. He sees what's going on there, and therefore he says, I, I love you. Why? Because John recognizes that this one is in truth. He has proper doctrine, and he wants that proper doctrine to characterize this local congregation. He says in verse 2, and verse 2 has been, been used out of its context by many where it says, Beloved concerning all things. Now, all things means just that. Everything that can, can be part of someone's life. He says, Beloved concerning all things, I pray that you might prosper. And this word prosper has to do with having success, achieving an objective. And that objective belongs to God. This is a major consideration concerning the, the thought of prosperity and success. It's not what we want. It's not what we desire, but we are being submissive to the purposes of God, his objectives. And what he's saying here is that he has been praying consistently for this individual that he would prosper in all things and, he says, to be in health. Now, health is a good thing, but notice what he says. Also, to be in health just as your soul prospers. Now, prosperity of one soul, that, that spiritual aspect of an individual. We walk in truth and we're going to prosper spiritually. And what he's saying here is that I want that same power of God to touch every aspect of your life. Not only your health, but all things. Now, does that mean that someone who is in faith is going to be wealthy, Nowhere can we derive that conclusion from it. Or are we going to be the best in our field? We're going to achieve some degree of notoriety? None of this is being said. What John is simply revealing is this, that truth is fundamental in bringing about the prosperity, the success of one's spiritual, spiritual situation. He will grow, he will mature, he will have discernment, and God will move to accomplish heavenly purposes in and through his life. And he says, I also pray that you'll be healthy and that you'll have this success, this prosperity in all things, meaning that God will have his way in every aspect of your life. So when you talk about prosperity and the gospel, Realize the prosperity that the word of God is speaking about is God having his way, his will in every aspect of your life that he is pleased, pleased with your leisure time, pleased with your work, what you do for, for sustenance, what you do for income, 
and how you serve him in a unique way. That call, that spiritual call upon your life to do ministry. So this is what he's saying. Let's move on to, to verse 3. Now, again, we're going to see in verse 3 and 4 an emphasis once again on truth being in the truth of God. We read verse 3. For I have rejoiced exceedingly. And then it speaks about the brothers coming and testifying concerning your truth. So the author here is saying, I have great, exceedingly joy because the brothers have, have come and they have testified concerning you, concerning your truth, just as in truth you walk. Now, walking is an important concept biblically. I've mentioned, mentioned this many times, that the term for Jewish law meaning how you apply the instructions of God to one's life, is related to the term walking. It speaks about a behavior, a lifestyle, how you live out your life. And what the author is saying here is this, that this uh, man, Gaius, he is someone who is in truth and knows truth, but here's the important thing, that in truth he walks meaning that he is implementing the truth of God in his life. Now, I believe that this is the foundation for success and spiritual prosperity that will touch every aspect of your life, that you are going to be successful in serving God, that you are going to utilize every aspect of your life, bringing them under obedience to the objectives of God. This is what he's talking about, and once again, in order to do that, you need to know truth, and as he says here, walk in truth. Verse 4, greater than these things. Now, he's speaking about how wonderful it is to hear about this man, Gaius, how he's living, how he's leading, what he's doing. And he says here, greater than this, I do not have joy. So no greater joy do I have than this. And what is that? In order that I hear my children. Now here this term children used frequently by John speaks about individuals that he has great endearment for, great love, compassion, concern, and, and that he's probably discipling them, training them, causing them to learn greater truth in the word of God, to mature in that. He says, basically, no greater joy than, than these things do I have that I should hear my children in truth walking. Now, this is the second time he's emphasized how much joy he has to see someone implementing truth in their life. And this is the prosperity, the success that John is referring to and that he's praying for in this man's life. And we should pray for, for others and nothing wrong with praying for that for ourselves. That we mature in the faith, that we grow in our knowledge of the truth and that we implement truth in our life. Doing so is going to bring about 
prosperity meaning this god's going to say well done he's going to be pleased verse 5 once again he uses that term beloved and then he has the word faith and the word for doing or making now normally we have a different order we would have making or doing faith now that's something that we probably that expression we don't use we would say uh, walking or behaving or doing something faithfully but here it's the order that's changed where it's simply the term faith but it's in the accusative which means that there is a verb that precedes it in our way of thinking so we would say doing faith and this is an interesting term that we need to ponder for a moment and that is this is what we're supposed to be doing he's emphasized in fact five times he has used thus far or four times he's used the term truth he'll use it a fifth time later on and he's saying this truth has caused you to behave in faith to do the things that demonstrates what you believe so look again he says beloved faith you are doing so that what you're working and doing the results that you're doing are for the brothers for other believers and for the strangers now there's been great debate on what he means by the strangers is he talking about fellow believers that that are just unknown to him in fact many see it as referring to that believers fellow ones that he does not know personally he knows that there are individuals that are coming that have testified that has counseled him on what's going on in this local congregation that 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 Gaius is is over he hears these things but he also speaks about and let's look at it with this context look again at at verse 5 he says which that you work out it's a a word of action of doing that you work out for the brothers and for the strangers and notice the outcome his behavior to those individuals that he knows those fellow believers and perhaps those fellow believers that he does not know making no difference it says that that he has a testimony they testify concerning your love before congregations the things just as you have done so those things that you have done that are well that are good that are proper so once again he says they have testified of your love before congregations the the things that well you have done and he says that you have sent forth worthily of God that means that you have put things in order in a worthy way and that worthiness belongs to God it's his definition of what's worthy what's proper so let's just review before we press on what we see here is that John is writing to encourage this individual who has a testimony a pleasing testimony to God that he has embraced truth 
He's living and doing truth. He's behaving in a way that demonstrates faith. And he shows no partiality, no favorites for those fellow believers that he knows and those that he do not know. And it says here that they testify concerning his demonstration that he does indeed have love. And this love is testified before the congregations because of the things, the good things, the things that he has done well is literally what it says. That he has set forth, he has put things in order. And the order is that which is worthy according to God. Verse 7. For in behalf of his name. Now, if you're looking at a translation that is not based upon the Texas Receptus, but rather Nestle Allen, you won't have the term his, you just simply have for concerning or in behalf of the name. And this is the name of God. One thing that's unique about this epistle is that you don't find the term Messiah or the name Yeshua, Jesus, in this passage of, of Scripture. But when the author refers to, to God, and whether it's God the Father or God the Son, that's not important. What is important is when he refers to him, he does so by the term Hashem or the name. Now, this simply supports a very common way within the Jewish community that one speaks about, about God. Many times people have written and criticized because of their lack of knowledge that, that many Jewish believers use the term Hashem for the name, the name of God. And this is simply what we see the author of this epistle doing in, in verse, verse 7, where he says, for in behalf of the name or his name, depending upon your translation, it says they have gone forth not receiving from who? From the Gentiles. Now, two things need to be said about this passage. Notice how there's a distinction here among John, and John's name, Yochanan, is a, a Hebrew name, and so he's Jewish. He refers to God by the term Hashem, the name, as we said, a very common thing within the Jewish community. And then he uses a term for Gentiles. Now, the reason why, earlier on, and this is an example of letting Scripture assist you in, in interpreting other Scripture. We have that term going back up to the end of verse 5 where it says, also for the strangers. And strangers could be simply foreigners, meaning non-Jews or non-believers. But I believe here, because when we come to our verse now at the end of verse 7, he uses a term for Gentiles, and clearly he is speaking about non-believers here. Now, let me share with you something about the Greek language and the term here that can be used for, for Gentiles. It can also refer to nations. It can refer to ethnic groups, but more often than not in the Scripture, and it's very important that you hear this, that this term is used 
throughout the New Testament, frequently, not saying every time that it appears, but, but frequently it's being used to, de to describe someone, and hear this carefully, that has no covenantal relationship with God. Now, that could be in contrast to, to the children of Israel who have a covenant. We won't go into the, the details about the implications of that covenant, but, but our covenant people. Now, it can also be in contrast to those who have a new covenant, the superior covenant through the blood of Messiah, who have a new covenant and those that do not. And in my estimation, when we come to this verse, the end of verse 7, where he says that you have not taken, received anything from the Gentiles, it's speaking about non-believers. Those who have no covenantal relationship, no new covenant relationship with God through Messiah. And therefore, he doesn't take anything. He doesn't participate with them because they're not, very simply, they're not in the truth. Now let's move to verse 8. Therefore, we ought to receive these ones. So he says, this behavior for them, only dealing with receiving from those that are in the truth, fellow believers, those who have a new covenant relationship. Because of this, he says, therefore we ought to receive such ones in order that fellow servants we become to the truth. Meaning this, that we demonstrate to them that we are fellow servants because we are, are committed that we are loyal to that same truth, that we have become committed to this truth. So this is another example of him speaking about how important truth is in making his decisions for behavior, who we fellowship with, who we serve with, who we receive and who we don't receive into our congregation. Now look at verse 9. He says... I have written to the, the congregation, the word ecclesia, the church. But, now, he's speaking now very specifically. He says, you know, I've written this to, in a general way, this local assembly, this congregation. These who have heard the term and the call of God, and they have come out, and they formed a, a community, a, a fellowship. He says, I have written to the ecclesia, the church, but the one that wants to be first, and it's literally the one who loves to be first among them, and he names him, a man by the name of Diotrephus. Now, this is a great example of, of leaders. When they see someone who is troublesome, someone who is not walking in truth, someone who is divisive, someone who is harming a local congregation. There comes a point in time when it is acceptable for them to be called out. Now, in some senses, it means that you go and confront that person personally, or you have knowledge that they have been confronted. They know 
that there's a debate, and they have said, regardless of the council, the, the admonition, the leadership, they have not submitted to that, and they continue on. Realize something. When one continues in disobedience, that he or she has been warned, this is not scriptural. This is problematic, and they continue in that same direction. That enables us to speak publicly and name that individual as we see another example of this here in the text. So once again, he says, I have written to the, the church, but the one who loves to be first among them, a man by the name of Diotrephus, he has not received us. Now, this probably refers to the fact that, that the author, John, he wants to have an influence in this local assembly. Him and those who are with him, fellow servants, that are committed to truth. But this individual, perhaps also a leader within the same congregation, he is not willing to receive them. So he says, he has not received us. Verse 10, because of this, since I have come, and it speaks of here, on account of this, if I should come, would be a better way of translating it, if I should come, I will make mention of, and what it literally says here, I will make mention not of him, but of his works. Now, I would highlight that. Yes, he has named this individual, called him out. But this is telling us something. It's not personal. That, that John here is not saying, I have a, a personal anger. I have, have hatred. I have bad feelings to this one on a personal level. Now, there are many people that I believe are, are very detrimental for, for the spiritual growth of others. They may be a nice person. They may be individuals that, that have a degree of kindness and, and a desire to, to help others. But if they have been confronted, and if they have a, a large enough notoriety and such, they hear the criticism. These are individuals that, that all across the internet and articles and such have been written concerning what many people see as heresy. They are aware of the criticism and they continue in it. These individuals, again, don't have a personal malice towards them, but what they're doing is dangerous, and this is what John is saying. He says here, if or, or since I will come, I will make mention, and it says, not of him, but it says, and grammar dictates this, I will be mentioning his works which he does. So it's not personal, it's because of his actions, his behavior. He's calling this person out because of behavior. In the same way that it's acceptable if you see someone doing something, maybe a performer or an athlete, it's nothing personal if a commentator 
that's describing the, the sporting event or one that gives a review in a newspaper of some performance, if it's bad, he has to be honest. But it's not personal. He doesn't have malice towards that athlete, that performer. In fact, it could be that he, he's really upset because he wants him to do well. He's for that team. He's for that, that group. But nevertheless, he says here, I will make mention of his works, which he does. And he speaks about these works. He says words that are evil and his, his babbling, and this is babbling for the purpose of, and it can be thought of as gossip, it can be thought of as slander. It's, it's speaking repeated, repeatedly in a negative way, and he says, his babbling against us, his speaking against us. And not, not uh, he says here, and not being pleasing or satisfied, not being pleasing with satisfied or satisfied concerning these things. Nor, he's not, and it says here, not being satisfied with our, our criticism not being willing to receive it, see that it's positive, correct. He says, because of this, he does not receive the brothers and the ones who are wanting, meaning the ones within the congregation who want to receive us, he forbids them. That's the implication. He forbids and from the congregation he casts out. So this one is quite a, a controlling individual. He says he doesn't receive us, and the ones who, who do want to receive us, who have purpose in their minds that this is right, he casts them out from the congregation. This is one who's not open up for criticism, for debate, for, for instruction, for correction whatsoever. And anyone who doesn't agree with him, he says, uh, there's the door you need to get out, in other words. Verse 11. In light of this, he says this. Beloved, do not imitate the evil, but the good, the one doing good from God, is from God. So he says, don't imitate that which is evil, but rather do that which is good. For the one that is doing good is from God. But the one who is doing evil, notice what it says, this one, and again, if you don't do proper study, you're going to lose out on so much. Because when, when I used to teach at a Bible college, we would do things such as this. We would come across this last part of the verse, and I would say, tell me what is significant about this phrase where it says, the ones who are doing evil, and here's the phrase, have not seen God. What is significant about that verb where it says, has not seen? Now, the first thing, in order to be able to answer that, you have to say, what is the grammatical construction of that verb? And what stands out here is that it's in the perfect. 
So someone who, and you don't have to be a Greek scholar, you can use many different uh, aids that are free online. And you can simply go and after spending a few hours learning the basic things about Greek language, it doesn't take as much time as you may think. You can use these helps and go and you find this word is in a unique construction. It's in the perfect. What is the significance of that? It speaks about something that was true in the past. It's still true and it's going to continue that way into the future, maybe eternally. And what it says here, here's the important part, when it says, the one who is doing evil, this one has not seen God, meaning he is not perceived, he hasn't experienced God. He hasn't in the past, he's not still experiencing God, and left to himself in the same way, he will not experience, he will not see God, perceive God, meaning there's no knowledge of God in this one's life. That's the problem. He may be in the congregation, but he is not someone of faith. Why? Because he's not living according to the truth. Now, verse 12. Here we deal with another individual, and this is the word, this is the name, Demetrius. And this one, it says, has been testified by all. So Demetrius, he's been testified by all. Also, by this same truth, also we bear witness. And we know that our testimony is what? Is true. So here we see, not just the fifth, but the sixth time, that, that the word truth appears in this passage. And it says concerning this man, Demetrius, it says this one has been testified by all that, that by this truth, it says that he's living. That's the implication. And also we testify and know that our testimony is true. So what we can conclude here is this. In this local congregation, there seems to be a struggle going on between two men. The two men that we have mentioned. Let's go back up. Look at the end of verse, verse 9 where we have the word Diotrephus. Diotrephus and then in verse 12, Demetrius. Two different words. And these are, are contending in the congregation. Now, we can do what some might say, well, we'll just love both of them. We'll just support both of them. Can't be done. There's a conflict. Truth demands a decision, an evaluation. And we submit to, not do we like this one more than the other, but who is committed to the things of God? Who has the truth of God? And obviously it says here that all the others, they're bearing witness concerning him that he has the same truth. And it says, we also, John and the ones who are serving with him, we also testify and he says, and you know, you know that our testimony, I want to translate this properly, and you know that our testimony is true. Verse 13. 
Now, we have just two verses left, and this is the, the summary. This is the conclusion he says here. Much, meaning many things I have to write. There's many more things that he wants to write, but he says, I do not want through ink and pen to write to you. He says, I have much more, but I'm not going to write it down now. Why? He says, but I have hope, or I am hoping immediately to see you, and mouth to mouth that, that we will speak. And now, verse 14, the last verse of, of these three epistles by John, he says, peace to you. And then he says, the friends greet you. Now, the friends is a word that speaks of, it's the same word, we all know the term Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Well, there's several different types of love, three particular ones in the, the Greek language. And one is speaking about a sacrificial love, that same word that comes from agape, beloved ones, the love of God, this sacrificial, this giving, this, this love that causes one to invest in another. But this is a love, kind of a friendship, of affection, of liking. And he says here, the friends, those ones that, that, that like you, they greet you. And then he says, as he concludes, you greet the friends, these same individuals, he says, by name. Now, one last thing, by name. What is he speaking about here? You need to get to know the character of these individuals. And the reason is clear. When, when this one, Demetrius, and also Gaius, these two leaders in the congregation, when they learn the character, the quality of people that, that John is bringing with him, that, that are part of this group, when they get to know them by name, their character, know them intimately, be aware of their commitments, their faith, their, their walking in truth, their demeanor, their personality, their conduct. When, when he gets to know these people in this way, then we have these two men. They're going to be easily able to make an informed, a wise decision on who to follow who to listen to, whose counsel to receive, and whose counsel to reject. Let me simply summarize our study of the epistles of John in a few sentences by saying, first and all, first and foremost, that doctrine is important. It begins with truth. We've seen how John has emphasized as a biblical truth the, the divinity of Messiah Yeshua and how when we submit to him in love, because we've experienced love from him, that forgiveness of sins, this justification, this, this removal of the wrath of God from us by receiving the gospel. When we do that, we are going to be people that are committed, submissive to the instructions of God. And this is something that's foundational in John's writing. Loving God demands 
that you are going to submit to the truth, the instructions, the commandments of God, and that you're going to love one another, and that love for one another means that you're going to want to remove and war against those things that attack the spiritual well-being, the growth, the maturity, the prosperity, the success of, of each believer and the prosperity, the success of each local congregation. John, we see, is a serious individual in regard to preparing a congregation one individual at a time that they might function in the anointing of the Spirit of God. Well, I'll close with that. Shalom from Israel. Well, we hope you will benefit from today's message and share it with others. Please plan to join us each week at this time and on this channel for our broadcast of loveisrael.org. Again, to find out more about us, please visit our website, loveisrael.org. There you will find articles and numerous other lectures by Baruch. These teachings are in video form. You may download them or watch them in streaming video. Until next week, may the Lord bless you in our Messiah Yeshua, that is, Jesus, as you walk with Him. Shalom from Israel.